out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Adele Nozadar, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and much, much more. One time a member of, um, now make notes because it's quite a few things she's done, quite a lot in fact. She was in a band called Indians in Moscow, then went on to form another band called The Fever Tree, then went on to form and start Rhythm, Rhythm King Records, Rhythm King, yes that's right, very danceable, um, from the late 80s and through to the 90s, and now is also an author and also forager and has done a lot of books, including, um, yes, a lot on sort of nature, hedgerows, birds, trees, dreams, tarot. Um, if you, yes, I'll give you her details at the end of the show, but anyway, look, if you if you want to find out more, she's got a fantastic website, Adele Knows Adele, and um, all the information is there, in tr- indeed it is. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Adele, take it away. Still love vinyl albums um, because of detail, and uh, really you're just like me, you You'd save up, go to the local record shop, um, you know, wait in the queue for whatever album it was that you couldn't wait to get hold of, and you kind of take it back home on the bus, kind of clutching it like this. Yes. And you get up into your room, slip the, um, the plastic on the outside, take the vinyl out, and the first thing you do is give it a, give it a big sniff. <laughs> don't you? I just love that petrochemical whiff. Yes, I, I remember and, that very well. Yeah, and <laughs> as you're listening to it, you're pouring over the artwork, um, you know, the lyrics, the who did what. It, it was just, it's just such a sensual and central experience vinyl albums. It was, um, and it was. I feel was... really lucky, actually, that that we lived through, that, that we were part of that um, exploration of something which was kind of, it was kind of a community thing. You knew who your tribe was because you could see what records they had. Um, and it's not quite, I'm not saying it's better or worse now, but it's, it's I, actually, I, I think it was better then. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the narrative, we, we have this sort of narrative because often, you know, it was that experience of seeing something on top of the pops and let's face it, you had top of the pops or the charts on Sunday afternoon, evening. And then you just kind of had to go, oh, I like that. And then save up something like 75p, which was quite a lot of money (laughs) when you were very young. And because you had to sort of somehow sort of beg for it because one's parents were just kind of, you know, just wouldn't just give you lots of money. So it's like, okay, and then you go and you go and buy it. And then obviously this was a precious thing that, you know, 50 years later you still have, you know, thinking, God, yeah. You still have. I remember picking up dinked singles you know, the singles that were ex jukebox, oh, so yes. they had the little dink missing out of the, out of the middle. Because um, for a while I lived in Withensea, which is um, on the east coast of Yorkshire, and there was a Saturday market there, and there was always a guy with a big box of dinked singles. So you could pick them up for like five pence each. So mm. I used to get loads of them, and I loved them all actually. Things like Echo Beach, Martha and the Muffins, and. Um, not, um, Chewing Hides the Sound was a brilliant one by Snake Finger. Snake Finger, wow. 
I've never come across snake finger, but then, no, there's, there's one for you. <laughs> I must have a look at that. So did you come from a kind of a slightly musical family? Were your parents at all into music? No, well, no, uh, they, my mum used to love listening to classical records and she would have a bath. Um, so she, she put an album on, um, on, it, it was like, um, the player that she had was like a square box that plugged in, right. didn't have any amplification or anything like that. So she listened to classical music and I was, um, Obviously, you you know at that age your influences uh, you know everything is an influence, isn't it? And I remember also that my best friend at school was was taking um, piano lessons, and I was really really upset about it because I really wanted to do piano lessons and she really didn't. And I had a school teacher. Um, I was six at the time, and I think I was sobbing away in a classroom somewhere. And she was the matter of just never played, never played piano and Sandra Pan and I can't play the piano and Sandra's getting piano lessons and this teacher said I'll teach you and she did <laughs> which oh, is brilliant so absolutely I know. that's fantastic I know I'm still in touch with her actually she's called Diane Davis and she's absolutely brilliant absolutely My brilliant God, that's an amazing yeah. connection and relationship so that was nine that was only 52 years ago you had that experience oh stop it <laughs> um but that that was, I think that was quite pivotal because I remember a couple of days later, I'd written a symphony, which obviously wasn't particularly good, um, but I just couldn't get enough of it. I really couldn't get enough of it. And I used to record um, stuff that I'd um, written uh, and, you know, it was, it was everything really. Music was just everything. Yeah, that's fantastic because our, our primary school was horrible. We just, you could just about do a triangle if you were really lucky, but I mean, the headmaster Well, the was... teacher... Well, this teacher actually taught me at lunch times, right. which was amazing when you come to think of it now. You know, it was like maybe 20 minutes snatched here and there. And then I ended up with a kind of proper piano teacher who lived up the road. And I, I just really, really loved it. I wasn't great at passing all the exams. Um, but to be quite honest, I see kids now that are kind of drilled into um the exam process with music and it's not necessarily what it should be about um mm. i think it's sometimes a little bit um it's it's not necessarily what the child wants i don't think i certainly didn't i did it all anyway but i was wondering actually what was what was the point of it all yeah. um, anyway it's good to be self-driven. I think that's the kind of key thing, isn't it? And did you have any kind of brothers or sisters who had a sort of influence on your kind of... No, it's just just me. Just, just me, I'm afraid. Yeah. There you go. And then as, as the sort of 70s progressed, because we had the wonderful world of glam, and then there was other bits and pieces that came along, like prog and a bit of heavy metal. Did, that, did you slowly get influenced by punk? Because actually I was just too young for punk. And... I think I was too young as well. I think, I think that punk was kind of there on the horizon, but I don't think I was old enough for it, just like you. Um, I do remember I went to a convent school and the mother vicar one day was, was giving an assembly and she said, um, for any of you who have um, this abominable record here, um, God say, you know, it was God say the, the queen one, um, she said, this is what I think of it. And I remember she snapped it in two and said, anyone bringing that into the, into the school is expelled and the other thing that she bundled that up with was Jackie magazine so right. if you had 
Sex Pistols or Jackie Magazine, you were out, basically. Um, so, of course, that just made everyone much more curious. And some of the older kids um, had actual, you know, had um, uh, albums and, and singles and stuff like that. So, um, again, I think the fact that it was forbidden made it even more um, exciting, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I remember so. going to the first gig that I went to was it was Gary Glitter. God, that's fantastic. At least people go. I know. Because mine was Gary, uh, Nine Below Zero, which was a bit slightly like, oh, it's not many people. That's, that's a bit advanced, isn't it? I mean, the funny <laughs> thing is, is like not that long after I went to see Gary Glitter, I, we ended up... Um, um, being support acts for him at one point. Double, double, double. double. <laughs> and he got stuck in the toilets. This is a um, whole university. We were doing a gig there. I would have been about 17, I think. And, <laughs> and the glitter got... band, real tiny. They're like, God oh, knows, absolutely titchy little people um, to make Gary Glitter look bigger. No. Did you know that? No, but bizarrely, I think I did an interview with... It was the drummer, I think, quite, you know, last year, sort of, because um, because Cherry Red Records recently reissued yes. the, the Glitter Band album, which I thought was a bit niche, but then I thought, well, perhaps perhaps, perhaps they've got a big following. But again, it's that nostalgia thing, isn't it? It is. But and I it's there, so it's not costing anything to Cherry Red. No, this is true. I just wonder, I, you know, you just think, oh, Gary Glitter's greatest hits or the glitter band I just think anyway who knows they they obviously uh, I did I did like Cherry Red I have, I have a friend who worked there and um called Theo um Theo Chalmers he'd be a great person for you to, for you to speak to and at one point he um he had a load of Finnish demo tapes and so he put them all together as a compilation album called The Shape of Fins to Come oh. <laughs> And he did that just just so he could put that title on it. <laughs> that is such a good thing to do. So when did you? I mean, your first gig was the the Glitter Band. Where was the, Where did you see? Not the Glitter Band, Gary and the band. Where did you see them? Oh, do you know what? I think it would have it would have been somewhere near Hull. Right. And I know my friend's mum took us there and picked us back up again, but I can't actually tell you where it was. It would have been quite a big venue, I think, because I'm just remembering now that it was kind of quite, it was quite full, but then it was the first thing I'd ever been to, so I, I don't really have anything to compare it to, but I can't remember actually where it was, but it would have been in Hull. Yeah. Oh. And did you and did you at that stage, this might be a bit unlikely, but were you aware, because I love David Bowie, um, were you aware that yes. the spiders from Mars were all from Hull? Did that did that sort of come? Was that you know ever... what? Tragically, no, it really, really didn't. Again, I think I was probably not advanced enough to to, um, to realise that. But there was a cafe that I know that they used to go into. And as soon as I got into um as, as soon as I found the, you know, uh, the error of my ways was overcome, I realised that David Barry was actually God. I used to go and sit in this cafe and imagine mm. that I was sitting on the chair that his bottom had been sitting on. I know. <laughs> would, who wouldn't want to do that? I know. Dear. Who would want to do that? Um, but I'd want to do happened, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then what happened was when I was... Um, 12, there used to be a radio show called the Paul Hunslet Electric Wireless Show. And I spent most of the time up in my room um, playing albums. I love Bauhaus as well. Um, 
And I sent a letter in saying, your show's really lame. It was really, really lame. It was really, really lame. So the guy that was running it called me up and said, well, if you think it's so bad, why don't you come and work here? So I was like, really? Um, so I used to do, um, so I'd go to school um, on the school bus, do a day's work at school. I'd have a thing called, then I'd go back to um, um, the radio station in Hull, Radio Humberside, and yeah. I'd pick up a thing called a ewer which was like a brick with a strap on. It was a recording device, okay? Really, really seriously heavy. And then still in my school uniform, I'd go to the local venue and interview all the bands. God. Which I didn't realise at that time that being in a school uniform and being like 13 meant I could go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> wow. God, they can... So the first band that I did, that I recorded... Um, was um the damned and then i did um Bauhaus. then i did madness a uh, couple of years after that i think that would have been and then i was offered a job at the bbc like an internship job um that would have been me being maybe 15 but then of course i didn't do it but i had a brilliant time and i learned so much i learned how to edit tape and put programs together and uh yeah it was it was great i don't think my parents knew i knew this was happening by the way you had such confidence that's that's incredible to sort of turn up as a i mean 13 it's bizarre isn't it i think um yeah it's it it, it is when you come to think about it i suppose um yes. but then boredom can be a, a rich kind of soil concept it can be. If you're a little bit bored, it can be, it, it can be uh, quite a handy thing. I think boredom is quite good. I suspect that we don't get bored enough these days. No, we're far too distracted. But um, did you ever keep any, do you have any of the recordings you did with these bands, the, you know, the bands um, you into? It was all, uh, isn't that sad? It's, it was all Radio Humberside stuff. So it was their tapes, their machines, yeah, their everything really. And I very much doubt that it would have been archived. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? That God, would have been fun, actually. That would have just been quite free, you know, just to be here. You're... So when did you sort of find yourself thinking, look, I want to sort of take this to the next stage and sort of start So singing? what happened was um, there was a kind of pseudo-punk scene in a village called Hornsea, which is just up the road from Withensea. Uh, we, we moved from Hull to Withensea when my parents got divorced. I stayed with my mum. And so we're at this little seaside town called Withersea. I put a band together called, what was it called? Mutant Quangos. Um, we used to rehearse in a room above a pub, but then the Budgie Society people um, didn't, didn't really like it because we were too noisy. So we had to, we, we had to find somewhere else. And I, I just, I was doing the recording stuff and with Radio Humberside, and we were sent to Hornsey, which had an awful big music um, thing going on in Hornsey. It's a little seaside town on the East Coast. Um, and we interviewed, I interviewed a band called The Vets, with my, I went with my friend Rachel, and they were in a recording, they were actually in the recording studio, so we spent all day there. It's brilliant fun. And then towards the end of it, they said, do you, do you guys want to do um, some singing on this? So I said, yeah, okay, let's do some singing. 
So we did a bit of singing on this um, on this album that they're putting together, and I thought this is brilliant. I really, really like this. Um, so I put a band together in Hornsey oh, um, called Indians of Moscow. And there you go. You were there. You were Rudolph. You were yeah. seven. A fantastic instigator. <laughs> and then the um, the um, keyboard players stepfather was, had been a jazz musician and he knew somebody who's putting a record label together so um we plotted off to london and came across kennick records which we thought was rca but it was run by ken and nikki hence kennick <laughs> um but they were multi-millionaires and they had lots and lots of money and they um they put us in penthouse apartment in Cadogan Square which is completely empty um, what they've done is they used to buy property for very wealthy people and hang on to it so this was an apartment that belonged to Rod Stewart um, so we stayed there for about six months or so rent free um, no heating no hot water <laughs> uh, uh, you know candles in the rooms and uh, yeah, it was it was quite amazing. It was one of those huge, great. Um, I don't know if you know Cadogan Gardens very well, but they're really tall, kind of quite elegant buildings. So we were in this place. It was bonkers, really. I mean, how this happened? And when it was really, really cold, what I used to do is there was like a butler's pantry with a great big sink in it, and I used to open the window, set a fire in the sink. Wow. <laughs> uh, to keep warm. I know. I didn't see that. Just, I thought you were going to say I, you fill it up with hot water and put your feet. No, <laughs> you just made a fire in a sink. God, that's amazing. Um, so that was Indians in Moscow. Um, it's it's really funny talking about this stuff actually because I've forgotten about it. It's it's really interesting when you start yeah, thinking about stuff. You just go, "This is really mad." It's slightly with Nell and I, isn't it? Really, but look, it so is. Yeah, it is. Because, yeah, because yeah, the 70s was slightly kind of a tricky decade for sort of on the political front. And then 79, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets in and suddenly we have this conservative government. And then there's the, the Falkland War and then there's Green and Common, mm. the minor strike. So then in that period, this is kind of the 1980s when you, yes. it's when the band is formed, this period. That's right. Mm. I think, you know, I have to say in as much as I absolutely loathe Margaret Thatcher and everything she stood for, the doll, I think, was really a, quite an interesting thing because yes. everyone was on. You could be yeah. on the doll five years, I think. So there was all this fermentation going on with people that didn't have a job, had a little bit of money. I think it was like thirty-five pounds a week or something yes. that you could subsist on, and all these amazing bands emerging. This is true. This is this is so true. This is why there's so many bands from the eighties. Yeah, because you also had those job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes, and one of them, which I can't remember which one, but you just had to say, "Oh, I've got a thousand pound in my bank account." You had to prove it, and then they would just go, "Oh, then that's fine. You can you can have a year, kind of as a self-employed person. You'll still get the doll plus ten pound more." And um, I remember the notorious thing that if you if you went to the labour exchange or whatever it was, and uh, in as by this time I was in London, and said um i'm a sheep farmer then basically they sent you away and just kept on giving you the money 
<laughs> Excellent sheep farmer in London. Um, yeah, but yes, it was it was that kind of period because it also I think you know from my memory from this period as well was it didn't feel like there was that many options and much of a future in a way of like well be unemployed that's absolutely fine. It wasn't a kind of it wasn't like oh my god I've failed my life. It's more like well that's fine. That's you know so many other people are doing this and it seemed all right. So I think that's where not everybody but there was a lot of creativity that went on during that period because like you said uh, um you know a certain amount of boredom but a sort of interest in you know creating something and there was some magic m moments of magic kind of developing out of that there, period. there were there really really were and it was it was almost like so the, the lockdown last year i found was in i you know without wishing to sound glib um i found it really liberating because I could do whatever I wanted. I mean, I love the work that I that I do now. I absolutely love it, um, but I couldn't do it. Um, and it almost felt like the same kind of freedom that we had when we were in London. Somebody was paying all the bills. Um, we had places that we could live in. We, we weren't exactly wealthy. You know, it was crisps for dinner, lunch, dinner and tea. Yes. Um, but it had that same kind of, childlike freedom about it that this would have been um kind of when i was 17 18 19 something like that yes we had a lot of tvp in those days and barley cups what's tvp oh textured vegetable protein now kind of that kind oh, of yeah. that mince, the mints that we, we yeah started that's right great TVP, that's TVP. right it yes. was yeah it, it was uh it was chewy wasn't it so it was you, chewy you could yeah, I think they're still Bag bog. It. Oh, yeah, we still buy it, actually. <laughs> it's good protein, you know, and it's quite cheap. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and, it um, is. It's, you can't... Are you vegetarian? Yes, we are. Yeah, I me am, too. So, and um, yeah, it'd be weird not to be, really. Um, but but it's yeah, that thing, you know, you have TVP, you have tomatoes, you put some herbs in, then you put sort of spaghetti, and then you get spag bog, and there you go. That was the diet for the 80s, wasn't it, really? Easy, I mean, beans. beans. You know, what's beans. wrong with beans? And then, and, then going to the puff, and then going to the pub for happy hour when it was quite cheap. So, you know. Oh, the joys, eh? So how did you, so the band started by then. Did you have a full lineup in sort of 81? Was this with Pete Stewart and yourself? Yeah, we we did. And um, there was a drummer, I can't remember the drummer's name, which is really terrible. Um, was it Rich? Rich Hornby? Yes, that's right. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. You're there. Don't, don't mean to, you know, um, denigrate you by forgetting your name. It was a long time ago. Um, so, yeah, we did have the full lineup. Um, obviously, that that had um, changed a few times, mainly drummers actually coming and going. Um, but, yeah, and what happened was the Tube TV show. Yes, we remember um, that one. Came, came to Hull. Um, and we were on it. There was us and the Red Guitars, who were a fantastic, fantastic band. In fact, I, I heard them the other day, again, doing good technology on Radio 6, and it's, it hasn't dated at all, their music. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Anyway, so we were on the tune, and um, that attracted quite a lot of attention, and then we were touring, and, you know... It all just kind of happened without really pushing anything too much. It just kind of all just opened up for us. Yes. Well, the um, 
was an amazing I mean I think in those days we had fewer gatekeepers but they were quite important you had sort of three weekly music papers you know NME melody papers yes. you had about 100,000 circulation which is boggling and then you had sort of a few yeah. DJs like John Peel and Janice Long and Kid Jensen yeah. and Annie Nightingale and mm-hmm. and then you know like every city and town in the country is um it just had an alternative night into an alternative you know a venue night for you know indie or punk or whatever they like to call it you know most on a monday tuesday or wednesday so you could sort of like for most people get a transit van and almost do a tour and it was it was kind of good exactly you could play in front of complete strangers rather than just your friends and family and anybody else you can blackmail to go and see you so it's quite nice to (laughs) to go oh yeah we can go around the country and yeah we we did all the we did all the transit van stuff as well and i remember the the back of the transit van there was a bit where there was a big hole in it so you had to be really careful and put all the amps and stuff around the side of where the hole was <laughs> and I remember we went up to Wishaw just as um, the, uh, there was a big strike happening in Wishaw and lo- loads of people were being laid off so we rocked up with all our kind of quite glam sort of gear and everything in this rusty old van and I remember that we decided we had time to go to the cinema before the gig and they were showing Purple Rain Nice. and somebody had logged um, a hamburger <laughs> at the screen of the cinema, at, you know, at, at the screen. And the whole movie, you're just watching this hamburger slide really slowly down the side of the screen. Poor old prince. I don't know why do I remember these stupid details. Yes, oh, well, they are, they are. Um, but that was quite rough. That was quite, that was quite a leery um, audience. Yeah. We had to run run away quite and at that stage because we'd had the sort of and this is a bit simplistic but you know there was the punk period and there's the post-punk and then there was a sort of the there was other scenes yeah. there was a bit of a psychobilly and a rockabilly sound mm. um, and goth mm. and there was a bit of the early le- electronic electro phase yeah. you, you sort of had that little bit of a scene didn't you well you you were sort of quite yeah. in that camp really so how did you develop that kind of sound because speaking to a few people during that period the technology was quite um was quite basic wasn't it yeah i mean i the, so pete riches and stuart who sadly died not that long ago uh were really into the electronic stuff especially i, I think i would say um especially pete and they just loved all that stuff um, and the record label um were quite happy to to buy us some of that stuff um, so that's how it developed, really. And I never thought of myself as being a singer at all. And I was very shy of singing, to be quite honest. I didn't want anybody watching me because I thought I was just absolutely shit. Um, so I used to go sing in the toilet so they'd mic me up and everything so I didn't have to see anyone. But being on stage was a completely different kettle of fish, really, because that didn't really matter because yeah. that's just being somebody else sometimes if that makes sense yes well david bowie did it and he and you know, he did yeah most, most singers yeah. do put on a persona don't they i think yeah i think you have to i tell, tell you what i i tell you i saw not that long ago um this year is toya oh. so toya played in prick howell uh which is a village just at the road from me and she was incredible she's just absolutely brilliant uh, she's really she looks amazing and she had a massive sense of humour about herself. 
Yes, we loved her. Just, uh, it's a mystery. It's such a great song. Dance. I know she was on Eddie Shoestring as well, wasn't she? Which was quite interesting. Have you seen the um, the um, the Sunday lunch? Yes, with Robert. It's just great, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's just amazing. I know they are just such an amazing couple. Um, yeah, I know it's just bonkers, really. But they have fun, and that's good, isn't it? They haven't. I mean, she's just you know you kind of forget that. Um, you think, well, you know, you like you said. I mean, she seems so agile and. Uh, flexible and bendy and you think wow that's really impressive you know because frankly as you get older sometimes it's not always that easy is it you know <laughs> to be that well, flexible. I'll, tell, I'll tell you when I find out <laughs> <laughs> but yes I'm, I'm sort of I'm trying to keep it flexible so look when you got yeah so you did a few singles first didn't you your first one was called Naughty Miranda so were you so that's how was right. the sort of creative process I mean with the band, were you sort of sitting there in a room putting music together, or was was there a couple of people who did that? Who were sort of mostly yeah, there was a it? bit of sitting around in a room. Um, I used to write bad poetry, and a lot of the things that were my bad poetry ended up being song lyrics. So I had piles and piles and piles of stuff, um, including the Indians in Moscow actual song, which I, I think is quite good. Um, you know, the, the song that gave the band a name. Um, so we'd kind of sit around. Um, after the record label picked us up, we initially we were still up in Hornsea and they put us in an old aircraft hangar. And so the band would get together and spend ages prannying around. And I'd go sit up a tree with a load of... Um, Reader's Digest magazines, and when they'd when they were ready for me to go down, I'd I'd go down the tree, quite a small tree, not not like a huge great you know yes. massive great big tree, and I would just then kind of pop the lyrics on top. Right, so that's how it worked. Um, it was quite easy. I don't think we thought too hard about any of it. It certainly wasn't difficult just popping out songs. Um, but they weren't necessarily very good. <laughs> no, but was, was it a bit like the, the David Bowie, you know, going on about his, his cut, you know, cut and paste thing, you know, his William Burroughs technique of getting here? Did you get sort of inspirations for your songs from, from the Reader's Digest? Was that... I would... But you know what? I probably did. I probably did. Yeah, I still like gazetteer type things, you know, things that are kind of um, a little bit all over the place. I, I haven't actually picked up a Reader's Digest for years and years and years, but possibly. So Jack Pelter's Sex Change Chicken was an actual story on the local news about a guy that had a sex change chicken. And I thought that was quite odd really so I wanted to write a song about it though the, the lyrics are actually quite dark it's quite a kind of um poppy little song but it's 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 got a dark undertone I think because I felt the chicken was being exploited yes um, anyway. <laughs> doesn't, need, um, doesn't need jack yeah so yeah so a lot of the things are about what happened with my parents divorce um, you know, so that was a good, I think, you know, if I think about it now, I think probably it, it could have ended up being quite therapeutic without me even realising it until I'm just speaking to you right now. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of those lyrics probably 
that it probably was a kind of therapy. Yes, I, well, I, I guess with all creative process, there's a certain amount of processing, isn't there? And um, yeah, and it's it's really cathartic. funny having the chat because I've only just realised that as well. So so thank you very much. I should pay you for this, shouldn't I, for this session? <laughs> <laughs> so so with the recording process, Not did today. You, <laughs> so did it did it sort of go quite smoothly did you have a sort of a week in your studio or were you in the did you say aircraft hangar we yeah it was a small aircraft hangar oh I can't really remember I think we used to drive up there we weren't doing anything else we were all on the dole what else are we going to do know. you know you go and maybe eat some chips and wander around fairly, fairly aimlessly and then go write some songs yeah so we were in quite a luxurious position, I think, and I suspect that there was another band in Hornsey called The Vets, who were absolutely brilliant. And there's another band called International Rescue that were also absolutely brilliant. We were nowhere near as good as they were, we never would be, but we had all the facilities, um, which kind of seems unfair, really, um, that the better bands didn't get the you know the kind of facilities that we had um, and we weren't very good and they were I, I mean go back and look at um yes. international rescue totally totally brilliant and the vets absolutely amazing band yeah but often the first album i mean a lot of people's first albums can be like oh, whatever but you yeah but there's always that potential i mean did you when you released that were you feeling like this was the beginning of of a sort of a kind of career in music I can't, I don't think so. I don't think I was particularly happy with a lot of what was happening in the band. Um, it's, it seemed quite disparate in many, many ways. Um, it's almost as if we weren't really particularly good friends, not really. Um, which, which actually, you know, uh, yeah, that, that kind of, um, that did bear out when uh, the band actually nicked all the we, we'd been doing a gig in London and we had the manager and the manager's wife and the drummer in one car and the two other band members were in the van um, with all the brand new equipment and we'd done this gig and the idea is we were going to be dropping off all the equipment into the um into the rehearsal studio hmm. and so we stopped outside the studio and it was dark and then the van with all the equipment in just revved up and just disappeared and they went back to Hornsey leaving me and the drummer and the manager all kind of looking at each other going what just happened <laughs> so they basically said so that the so this was quite some time into um, this would have been, I would have about 22, 23 at this point, I think. Um, so we didn't have a band anymore. So we put together a new band, uh, which is called The Fever Tree. Yes. Um, which I personally prefer that band. It, it's, it, it seemed like a proper grown-up band. We weren't kind of playing anymore. We had proper musicians in. So Ali McMordy from Stiff Little Fingers was in. Um, there's a brilliant guy called Tom Hosey from Australia who was in a band called was in a band called The Models that was quite the big thing in Australia. In fact, yeah. he came up here um, to visit um, just at 2019. 
So that was quite lucky that he came up to yes. the UK. And it was, it was brilliant seeing him again because that felt like there was a proper dialogue um, with, with the new band people. And it just felt... I, hmm. I think the, the previous band had been a little bit bitchy sometimes. Yes. I think I got the... I got the sharp end of that a lot of the time, I think. Because during that period, the 80s, though there were some good things, a lot of people were a bit angsty, weren't they? And a bit sort of grumpy about capitalism and, you know, capitalism, really. Um, oh, and I did, was, there, was, there, was there a bit of a class war thing that went on when people just drove off with you? I didn't... I, I, there, could, there could have been an element of that to it, potentially. Ideally, what it you know actually what it was is they'd stolen stuff. Yeah, you know, it wasn't ours. Um, so there might have been something like that, but I, I think it probably just got to the point that there's just an awful lot of resentment. Yes. So rather than talking about it, we that never really happened, um, which made life life a lot easier actually because it kind of liberated me to go great, mm-hmm. okay, that that over with. Let's do something different now. Did I, um, did I that- feel? I was just wondering, was that that must have been a bit awkward though? There was a sort of awkward silence with the hell the yeah, really seriously awkward. Um, I can't even remember what happened actually. I know I never saw them ever again. Apart from Stuart came to visit me in Wales, which was really nice. Um, when would that have been? Probably about fifteen years ago. So that was good. He and his wife came up, and that that was really nice. Um, but yeah, but then what happened was, um, so the band, you know, the, the second band, the one with Tommy in and all these good people kind of didn't really, just didn't really do what I thought it could do. And so it's kind of washed up again, wondering what to do. And we went out to a creation records evening. And I know Alan McGee, so if he if he if he listens to this, if he ever sees this, apologies to Alan. But we went, I can't remember who the band was, but it was a toe-gazing thing, and it was just so miserable. And then we went clubbing and went back to my house with, with two or three friends and said, Why don't we do why don't we do a record label? We could do, we could do, you know, we, we could do some of this amazing music that's coming out of America. So we trudged around all the record labels in London and got nowhere fast. Um, but within six months, the record that we had our eyes on, Fandy Jack Master Funk, was number one everywhere around the world. And Daniel Miller, who we'd gone to see, mm. called us up and said, you guys, that was you are absolutely right. So what what was happening with Mute was they, um, obviously they were expanding and they were going into much bigger premises. And we were offered three months to come up with something. And we walked into this building, which is massive, which is the biggest office. <laughs> it had all those funny little... Um, executive toys and a little clacking thing spinning chairs and all that kind of stuff in the Harrow Road and we managed to squeeze out a hit record in three months and again I don't know quite how we did that but we did (laughs) and then and this was like a disco type hit and what was really fantastic uh, and we called the label Rhythm King was where we were in London 
was just a hotbed of amazing talent, uh, which I realised when there, there was a there was a, a donut shop on the corner of the road. And I went in there one day and the guy said to me, I've got a load of stale donuts. Do you want them? And I said, yes, I do. So I took these stale donuts back to the office. Then every day I'd go in there and say, do you want stale donuts? Because he was only going to chuck them away. And all the people that would um, that came to share in the donut bounty, we ended up signing them. <laughs> no. So Mark Moore, um, Betty Boo, um, uh, Tim Simonon, all, I mean, there was so much talent in, in that tiny little patch of London. My God, you were, um, you were on the musical zeitgeist with this movement. But just, you mentioned one exciting thing there, which I always get very excited by, um, Creation Records and Anna McGee. Tell us, tell us, yeah, some, tell us yeah, what yeah. happened there, because we love those stories. Um, so we went to Creation Record, Records Night. I can't remember who was playing, but it was very, it was the real kind of toe-gazy stuff. So was it My Bloody Valentine or somebody like that? It could have been something like that. It could have been something like that. We didn't stay very long, to be honest. Yeah. It just wasn't where we were at that time. I am now, I love all that stuff now, and I love Alan. I think it's amazing. Yes, we love um, Alan so much. He's just, you know... Yeah, I, he could just, he's just brilliant. Um, so we didn't stay that long. And then I think we went to heaven um, and just thought this was, this was kind of where we were. This is kind of what we wanted. Um, so hence, there was that divide as well. So, so the kind of hedonistic, there was the kind of hedonistic um, music that was going on versus that really kind of, introspective toe gazing stuff yeah and it was an uncomfortable place in the middle really because you either you were one of the, you were that tribe or the other tribe i mean really now i mean i think that's all broken down and you can listen to as many different kinds of music as you like and you don't that that tribal thing isn't quite the same as it was i don't think Yes, it was very Maybe tribal in the old days. It was it was incredibly yeah, tribal because um, you'd get beaten up if you were in the wrong tribe or were in the wrong place. But it was quite interesting because the 80s, I've slightly broke this down. This isn't a watertight theory, but it's quite fun. But yes, because I've got sort of, you know, I sort of mentioned that punk and post-punk. And then sort of 83 to 87 was the kind of the glorious indie years with basically it was the years of the Smiths. And then when they broke up, that next kind of phase of the next 16 to 18 year olds came along. And it was the sort of ecstasy kind of moment as well wasn't there and then yeah. suddenly everybody wanted yeah. to dance and there was the the Manchester oh. scene with the happy mondays and stone roses and um yeah primal scream and um soup dragons bizarrely um but then but yeah but then you that was a mute, upon, mute but, yeah and then you got the sort of like the chicago house sound started to come out and there was was it ffrr FFRR, yeah, that's right. London Records, and there was those compilations, and I remember John Peel playing Funny Jack Master Funk, and that was Love Can't Turn Around, wasn't it? And it was like, oh, this is pretty. It was. Well, that was that was the record that we picked up. Yes, that that was pretty. We were looking for a home for, and it was, you know, that was just out of the bag, basically, wasn't it? It was just colossal. Uh, Because we tried to like. Because, oh, yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, because we tried to get into Trouble Funk, didn't we, with, uh, was it, um, what was that, what did they call it, Go-Go music with Trouble Funk, and they were on the tube. Yeah, that's right. 
But so that didn't Farley's quite really take sad. off, did it? But Farley Chuck. So James, James Horrocks. So there's myself, Martin Heath, and James Horrocks put this label together. Now, James would be a great person for you to speak to. He's down in Devon now, I think. And he's still running club nights and still putting albums out. And his taste is impeccable. He has a really, really good eye for a hit. Right. Yeah, um, so, so he'd be a, a great person to speak to. So you started Rhythm King. Yeah. Wow. That's right. This is quite amazing, isn't it? So that's when you must have kind of come come across all those other labels. What was this Sleeping Bag Records, wasn't there, from America? There was Sleeping Bag. Um, in the oh. offices, we had uh, Blast First next oh. to us, who had you, so they'd be in and out. Um, and then, of course... Um, Nick Cave and Bad Seeds were on mute, so they would be in and out quite a bit. Um, PJ Harvey, you know, so it was another, um, it was another phase um, of being in that space um, and all because of Daniel Miller. So Moby, we picked up Moby and did the Go single, which mm-hmm. was um, the David Lynch um you know, you know, it was based on the David Lynch soundtrack of what's it called? Is it Twin Peaks? Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so that was Moby, and Daniel was able to pick up. You know, if there's anything that he particularly loved um, that we found, the deal was that he he could have it, and he took Moby, and the rest is history, really. So you know. And they asked us, have you read his autobiography? Moby's. Yeah, no. it's fascinating. You don't have to like him to love the autobiography, by the way, although we love him anyway. Yeah. Um, so what was the question? I've forgotten. <laughs> no, you're, you're the record label. No, because I remember the f- very first Moby singles were quite different to... to um... Very, very, very different to what happened subsequently. Yeah, yeah. and, and, I and quite also like, we had yeah. Aphex Twin. Oh my god! And we had uh, oh god, it was you know it was it was coming in thick and fast. Yeah, um, and rhythm came quite big quite quickly, a little bit top heavy possibly. Um, but so much good music around. Les Negres Vert. I don't know if you uh, came across them. They're a French gypsy band who um, I remember going, this is an enemy thing. The enemy really need this. And, and guys in the enemy said, really, it's shit. I was just really not into it. Um, six months later, they were all over it. <laughs> um, so it's it funny. It's funny with those magazines. I, I, one of the things that I deeply regret is that the music press used to be avidly read by everyone. Um, that was into music and it, I thought it was just absolutely amazing it was it was a real treat actually to to have all those journals to do with music and we don't anymore and no. I'm a bit sad about it. so that was oh yeah were you part of Jive Records as well then was that part did you um, Jive Jive was um island records so no they were subsidiary subsidiary of island records so no we didn't but we did have betty boo yes and we signed her when she was 16 incredibly talented songwriter amazing amazing so did you and um... i had so i also had a a kind of offshoot pr company for the stuff for certain selected 
artists that I really, really loved. Um, but and on Rhythm King, like, do you remember Delight? Yes. So I did that campaign, which I'm very happy about. I'm not surprised. Um, who else? William Orbit, I worked with quite a bit. So, yeah. Because recently, God, who did I meet, speak to? Oh, one of the PR companies, they're all doing books as well, aren't they now? Um, calls himself Jane. Mm. Anyway, God, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, but there were certain PR, did you work with PR companies out, outside Rhythm King as well? I, I had one. I started a little teeny weeny PR company. Yeah, we did. And the, the, radio, the record pluggers as well. That was, I don't know if anybody does anything like that anymore. Yes. So what was your PR company called? It was called Rhythm King um, PR. Right. Rhythm King PR. <laughs> God, you must, you could Cause, cause it was in that period then. We did Nana Cherry as well. We did Buffalo Stamps. Um, oh so Tim Simonon used to come to see Indians in Moscow. Um, so that's how I knew him. And then he washed up in the Donut Club. <laughs> Too good old Tim. I know there was, um, and, he, oh, and they did an amazing collaboration. God, actually, my brain's kind of all over the place. Oh, uh, he's, he's done some amazing, amazing music. Um, he's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, I can't name any of it right. Oh, it was we were Justin Warfield called Bug Powder Dust. That was an amazing song. That's Bug Powder Dust. That's right. Blew my mind. Absolutely yes. brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So how long did you? We did long... the first ever clear. Yeah. Sorry. No, I said how long did you stay with? You know, obviously this is your label. How long did you stay with Rhythm King during the during the nineties? So. Yeah, so with Rhythm King, um, we had the Betty Boo album uh, was going to go straight in at number one. We knew that that was happening. But in the meantime, Rough Trade were having a really, really seriously bad time. Yeah. And we're just about to go into receivership. So there we were with an artist that we had 50-50 deals with our artists, by the way, which is unheard of. So we had to pay our artists, but there was but our distribution, which is um, afraid, didn't have any money. So we were F-U-C-K-E-D, really. So what we did was we went to Sony and we had to do a deal with Sony to kind of close that gap. Um, so that was philosophically not what any of us really wanted to do. Um, I remember going in with the Beatmasters to so they didn't take everything. I think we gave three selected artists that you know were the big ones, if you like. Yeah. So I remember going into with the Beatmasters, who are very, very smart, interesting, wonderful people, um, to have a marketing meeting. And so we had this meeting, it was really strangely stilted, and you know, it kind of it wasn't a flowing meeting and it was all really awkward and the band left after about an hour or so and the woman who's sitting there said oh great now the band's gone we can have the proper meeting and I said what, what do you mean what do you actually mean so it's pointless having a band in a room because they never have any ideas that are actually feasible and I remember just standing up and saying you and I have an awful lot to talk about at some point but not right now because I was so angry um and I don't know whether that was normal 
Um, but I found it incredible, bizarre, absolutely bizarre. Yes. And I think that was, I suddenly realised what we were in for with ages. And it's, it's a very, very different world. So um, after 10 years, uh, we, we sold Rhythm King to BMG. And I became general manager of Arista UK, um, a job for which I was infinitely badly suited. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And every Monday morning, there was a session of three hours, which was the meetings meeting. So it was all the meetings that you have for the week, all kind of laid out first thing on a Monday morning, what you're yeah. going to be doing for the rest of the week. Now, in 10 years of Rhythm King, we only ever had three meetings and I found the agenda for it not that long. And the first item on the agenda, which had three items, was what kind of biscuits are we going to have? <laughs> <laughs> so it was really chalk and cheese and I floundered in um, BMG. It wasn't me at all. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what was going on. Um, the first thing I did was I asked everyone to come and see a band that we were constantly signing. And the next day I had overtime chits from people. So overtime chits for people that were in the music industry, but wanted their taxis paid for to go see a band. I mean, what, what's that about? Yes. That's bonkers, isn't it? Yes, it's 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 a bit tedious. Huh? <laughs> it's very tedious indeed, unbelievable. So I'd never seen anything like it, and it and it was almost as though a lot of the people that were in um, in this company could have been selling cars or insurance or you know anything, but they weren't. This is music, and music is possibly, I'd say the art form of all art forms that connects people. That's what music does. It connects people. It's, it's in the air. You can't hold on to it. You can't, you can't pull it out of the trees. It, it's there. It surrounds you. It's, it's like scent, isn't it? It's like one of yes. those things that is totally evanescent and sublime. And you don't want to go to, you don't want to see a band. I just don't get that. Yes, I mean, amazing. They went through the the application process and the interview process and still got the job, even though they just still wanted to. Um, it yeah. didn't sit well. I, I did meet some of the people there, and there was there was a definite kind of this was a career thing to get to the next run of whatever next ladder it is, in terms of um, working within a big company and then being able to take that skill set elsewhere to then sell a different kind of thing and for me it was only ever about the the music yeah. like you doing this so no one's paying you to do it no <laughs> so so that was the john so what, had you gone through the john major years with rhythm with them kim was this kind of the latter part of the 90s and do you know what i can't remember yeah it would have been actually no no it wouldn't have been it been earlier than that I think I I was there for two and a half years and the half bit um I was only there for the extra half bit because I had a key man clause bizarrely 
um, with one of the artists. Um, so no, it would have been earlier than that. It would have been, if I had a diary, I should have brought a diary in because it's all in there. Um, but it would have been earlier than the John Major years, I think. Right. And again, 1998, I think, ish, I think we're talking about. Does that make sense? Yeah, Team Tony, that was the honeymoon period of New Labour. Yes, 97. Was, oh, so 97 yeah, it would have been then because we did. Well, we had D Ream, that was still on Rhythm King. So, and Doreen was, you know, the um, the Tony Blair thing. They used things are going to only get better. Yes. So that was when we were still at Rhythm King, actually, that was going on. I've forgotten the guy's name, actually. He's Irish. Really seriously nice. I remember speaking to a woman recently, Delphine, Delphine, who was kind of singing on that song, actually. Right. Okay. That's interesting. She's now in Norwich. But, um... But she's been in lots of bands, but, you know, she, she's often just been on those kind of... But, yeah, she said, oh, yes, I sung on that song, you know, with my friends. And I can't remember the names of them now, but, you know, they did it. And there was also that kind of famous guy who's now sort of always on the TV, isn't he, who's in it as well, from D. Ream. God, we're going to have to look at D. Ream now, aren't I? Um, <laughs> we are, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> D. Ream band. Yeah, so, yes, so you... Yeah, so you... You obviously captured the, the zeitgeist, cool, cool Britannia sort of period, didn't you? With um, yeah, you know that that kind of record label because I, I kind of. So we I also had we also had Echo we also had Echo Belly that was a bit like that as well. I think they would hate hate me for saying it, but they they were quite um, an ambitious band. You know, they're quite um, uh, robust. I think is is the word. You know, they knew where they were going. They knew what they wanted to do. They had loads of ideas about, you know, how they wanted to be presented. So, yeah, the, the funny thing is, is not uh, it's kind of the same age as a lot of these people, um, or a little bit older, a little bit younger. Um, so then we had people like the Beatmasters. Um, that was along with the Essex. I'm, you know, my my timeline stuff on this is all over the place. I don't think I'm remembering the, the sequence of events particularly well. Um, I wish I'd done some homework now. Oh, no, no, it's absolutely, no, no. I mean, the 90s were a bit of a blur. Did you, be, I mean, I'm not saying you did, but I mean, there was a lot of money sploshing around, wasn't there, in the 90s? They did get a bit of a reputation, didn't it, for sort of kind of the good... Well, there's, there were things like the Duran Duran videos that were the most, you know, um, expensive video ever done, and they've got the lead singer kind of upside down going through a water mill <laughs> oh god <laughs> yeah wild boys yes you remember all that and then there's that brilliant video for um oh god almighty um frankie goes to hollywood you know with the wrestling ring yes so that was a big movie maker wasn't it that did that so there was a lot of lavish spending there was a lot of um bands that would never never ever get their marketing costs paid back because a and r costs um were was one thing um but the marketing costs the bands generally had to stump up yes ouch yeah he was brian cox he was in d ream he was the one who's brian cox of course yes he was dear old brian cox actually so then when you when you were sort of decided 
with Arista, that was going to be it, to quote Jim Morrison, the end from the doors. Did you um did you walk away from music at that stage or did you No, um the whole Arista thing had actually made me ill. Um it it wasn't good at all. It it was quite a toxic environment. I looking at it now, that, that's what I'd call it. Um so what I did was this is gonna sound ridiculous, but um I I moved to Wales really, really precipitately. Um, and I was only allowed to buy the house because I had the same birthday as the owner. So that's, this is the bonkers stuff that sometimes happens. And we built a recording studio um, up a hill, long way away from anywhere called Twin Peaks. And our first clients were from Brazil and um, the reason they came to us is they're looking at real world and they couldn't afford it right um, their own their own studio had been eaten by termites <laughs> <laughs> and so they were our first clients and I'm still in touch with them actually they're absolutely lovely lovely people they didn't speak a whole lot of English um, but one of them Teco Teco um, Love the Beatles, so we could converse in Beatles lyrics. Mm. So, long and winding road, Teco. Ah, oh, yeah, leads me to home. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second band that we got in there was the Manic Street Preachers. Wow. God, yeah. That's amazing. So, and then it just rolled on. And possibly the most difficult session we had was with. Um, Pete Doherty. Yes. Um, so we were his bail address um, when he was, so it wasn't, when he was doing the amazing album called Albion with Nick Jones from The Clash. Um, so that was interesting. And in fact, that's been, uh, there's been a book written about that, um, about the band, and quite a lot of it is about the sessions up at peaks because it was really it was like something out of a movie yes blimey so how many years did you have that studio um the studio we had for so nine four ten years or so um so my ex-husband adam is just in the middle of um, building a new studio. He's, he's nearly on it, actually. That's in, in Mid Wales, and that's going to be called um, Twin Peaks as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, yeah, so all, all, all good, still good friends. We're still really, really good friends. Yeah. Did you, because um, there's that other famous, oh, Rockfield, isn't there, in, in Wales? Rockfield, yes. That's, that's in Monmouth. Yeah. That's so, what was the ethos or the, the idea behind having the studio which you built? Seemed like a good idea at the time. That sounded like it. Yes, that's good. Was it residential? Uh, we had, yeah, we we had two bedrooms, so two two double bed bedrooms, um, and it was right in the middle of the Brecon Beach National Park, um, and a lovely place, a really lovely place, a lovely place to to make music, yeah. a really lovely place. And did you enjoy sort of moving over to the the West Country? Um, 
yeah, I, I love Wales. It's, it's where I am now. It's an amazing, amazing place. Um, it's not necessarily for everyone, but it is ridiculously beautiful. I mean, if I could show you pictures of the snow on the hills this morning mm -hmm. when I was walking, stunning. And of course, it is. There's, there's, there's kind of there's, there's music in the soil here, you know. Because I know if you've ever heard a male voice choir, it's just you know, it just makes you weep. Yes, because I used to go to an event in in that area called Dance Camp Wells, which was kind of a bit, it was a bit of a hippie gathering for about two weeks, 10 days, two weeks. And there's TP Valley and there's, there's a lot of, yes. kind of people who kind of got yeah. themselves little places. And I did an interview recently with a guy called Tibetan Tony. I have no idea his surname, but he lives in a bus in some <laughs> sort of bender in some place in Wales, you know, Tibetan. And he runs the kids field in, in Glastonbury Festival. So I, I sort oh. of, Cool. Okay. So there was a lot of kind of hippies kind of slipped in or, you know, I mean, they wouldn't call themselves hippies, but frankly. It's, it's not quite so easy to do that now, I don't think. But yes, there are certainly, you can certainly hide away in Wales, do your own thing and no one's going to bother you. Yeah. Um, which is fantastic. Yeah, because there was a guy called Tony Wrench and he built a sort of a little place, you know, off grid and it was all very interesting. And then they found it and went, oh, we'll have to knock it down. And then it was a big campaign. They stayed, uh, they kept it. They I kept think it. I remember, yeah, I think I remember that because it's an example of what everyone could have been doing and which we want everyone to do now. So, yeah, there's always going to be outliers, aren't there? Yes, and, we and love visionary. them. Yeah. So then with that studio... Then did you sort of decide to have another change of career again? Uh, what happened was, um, I don't know how much to tell you because this sounds really bonkers. So we managed to buy this house because it had, had the same birthday. Oh, yes. And I thought that I was going to be much more hands-on in the recording area, but it didn't work out like that. Um, so I ended up learning to cook. Um, so I um, so I was cooking for the bands, which is quite good fun, actually. It's a good thing learning to cook, actually. Yes. And I got really, really bored. And I thought that the birds were talking to me. And so because I realised that I was really, really bored and slightly... Um, in danger of going bonkers, I sent an email to a load of friends out, a load of friends just one evening after a couple of glasses of wine, said, what kind of bird would you be and why? And the next to back, including one from um, a friend in America who said, well, I, she wrote this brilliant um, piece about how she was a swan, really. And then at the end, she said, why are you doing this? And I said, in all honesty, I think I'm going crazy with boredom. I know a publisher who'd really like this as an idea. So why did you contact her? So I was just like, so I sent, I was given the email. So I, I sent exactly the same thing that I'd sent to everyone else. What kind of bird would you be and why? And she actually called me up, this woman, uh, Wanda Whiteley, she's called. And um, I got a book deal to write a book about birds. In fact, it's here. I thought you were going to be talking about um, books. <laughs> so this is the first book I wrote. This is a book, and if you drop it on your toe, you know about it, which is the kind of book that I like. Yes. Um, and 
And then I, I ended up with a two book deal. And so when I was seven, and it's about symbolism, I'm really interested in symbols and symbolism um, because it's how we interpret the world as human beings. It's how we make sense of the world, I think. Mm -hmm. We do that by making symbols. So that was that. And then um, I then I got myself an agent because I, I didn't have a, a literary agent. And she said, uh, Isabel said, what do you really, really love? What's your real passion apart from music uh, and birds and symbols? And I said, well, actually, I really like, I'm really interested in plants and trees and all that kind of thing. And she said, we well, should write a book about that. And I said, to be quite honest, I, there's so many people who have written books like that. I don't think that I would be able to kind of compete with anything else. And she said, don't worry about that. Just put a proposal together for, a, you know, a a plant book that you'd like to write and let's see what we can do um anyway so that was the hedro handbook which is coming to its 10th anniversary this year and it's got a new edition coming out and it's apparently one of the best entry-level books into foraging but the only bit of the book that talks about foraging is a little little thing about um Liz Taylor, um, talking about, you know, that it's not a foraging book. It's, it's a book about going out, having a nice time. Maybe you'll find something, maybe you won't, but really it's about nature connection. Nice. Um, yeah, so that's that. And then... And there's a few more books as well, yeah. You've done loads of books. Yeah, I have, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> You've done, and you, and I make, I make gin too. You make gin. <laughs> so I work. I I work with a distiller. I don't. I don't drink gin. Uh, I like what it does because it's a really good canvas for lots of different botanicals. So botanicals that you get in botanical gin are plants. Yeah. So I make gin with the Gower Gin Company as a backup to getting people going. Oh, okay. Oh, it's gin. <gasps> Oh, gin is plants, you know, because it's just connecting things together. Yes. Um, yeah. And when, so, and when do you bring together the book called Foraging with Kids? Is that your latest one? No. Um, the Foraging with Kids one is, is here. And this is because I've taken out so many family groups and what happens with family groups is the kids always ask really awkward questions the parents tend to hang back because they want to be correct the whole time and what I was finding was I was having to write down all the things that all these kids were asking about because I didn't know the answers either so this is why I wrote this and also the other thing that I did with this book is although we've got the binomial names in it you know the, the botanical names if you mm -hmm. like the, the latin the it's a Latin name. Um, I've also left space for the kids to put their own names in of the plants because that's how it started in the first place. And that's why there's lots of plant names and the plants that have the more names are the most valuable plants. 
these we've given them names yeah yeah um, and also it's a coloring book so that you but the idea is you um i can't find a page with a picture so the idea is that you um you find the plants and then you color it in in the book which is a really good way of id and also on my website if you want there's free resources for this particular book but the newest book um, is this one so this is the tree forager and this is about trees and the connection with music so we're kind of coming around full circle um i realized that trees and music are closely interconnected but i'm not clever enough to be able to work out why so what i did was each chapter has a piece of music with it that i think fits that tree because i want people to go back and listen to music and then think about what they've read yeah. Um, but also there's a Spotify playlist, which is a tree-related playlist, which has a lot of people um, adding to it now. Um, so that's been brilliant fun. And also the foreword was written by a friend of mine called Harry Hauschka, oh. you might have come across. He's, What's um, his name, Michael? Ha Hauschka. His mm. name is Volker Bertelsmann. Mm. No, I haven't. Um, he would be a great person to speak to. He uh, was in a kind of rap band, actually, but he he does a thing called the prepared piano. So he'll get a grand piano and fill it full of ping pong balls. And as he plays the keys, the balls all bounce around and make funny, funny noises. And he used to come up to the studio quite a bit, and we did quite a lot of work with um, quality street rappers <laughs> in the strings of the piano. So, so that was, uh, yeah. So and it's we, all the same thing. Yes. Music. So, books. so your, when did your sort of connection with kind of spirit and nature become more part of your life, or was it always there? I suspect it's always there for everyone, but because we have to live a normal life, we don't always think about it too much. And I suspect that it might, it seems to be more important now for people. There's, I've noticed since 2020, there's really, A, my foraging stuff has got a lot, lot busier, but also there's a real hunger for people to know what this connection is or try and find out about it. And of course, it's really simple um, because we are nature. Mm. You know, the periodic table doesn't have anything in it which we which we don't have. So we're all made of the same stardust. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that's my take on it, that you are already connected with nature. It's really simple. All you have to do is just be yourself. And that's that's it. That's it. Um but for some reason, I think we have really busy lives, so we we forget how busy things actually are. And you can do anything you want as long as well, you can do anything you want, can't you? Like you can do this, I can do my thing. We don't need to be trammeled by what anybody else thinks or what we think we ought to be thinking at all. Yes, absolutely. My God, that's so that's so incredible. So it sounds like you've, you've easy, sort of, isn't it? You've got you know you've got quite a a nice balance you know, with your sort of, your workshops, your sort of 
your publication, um, your, your connection. Am I not so ridiculously lucky? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I really do feel very, very, very fortunate um, that all this has happened. I did a tarot deck as well, by the way. So that was this one. So the, the first book was The Secret of Magic Birds, and originally that was meant to be a tarot deck because... Well, actually, it wasn't meant to be a tarot deck, but it was meant to be something that was like cards because I didn't want birds move. Mm. So I wanted the idea of the book being moving somehow. Um, so I didn't even realise I put together a tarot deck, but I did. Um, do I believe in the tarot? In as much as it can be a psychological guide, yes, I do. Um, do I believe that it's about fortune telling? No, I don't. If you believe that, that's up to you, but that's not that's not what I perceive it to be. Um, I like the Jungian idea of the tarot as being archetypical, um, an archetypical group of human types, basically. That yeah. kind of works because they all fit in somewhere somewhere or another. Um, so I'm interested in how it works why people are interested in it and funny enough this has a big musical thing as well lots of the um the, the um lots of the major arcana are musicians in this deck as well so again it's another music another wacky musical connection <laughs> <laughs> and with that you mentioned having that spotify playlist is with the tree yes is that one that's yes. kind of original music specifically made or was it kind of no it's not original music specifically made i think it would be a very slim thing if it was um although people could do that if they wanted yes. to it's just called the tree forger and it's on spotify oh my god i'll look at that I love things like that. Yeah. It's oh. actually a really nice playlist. And you know, the interesting thing was um, whenever I've written a book, I've gone, right, okay, it's ready to go to, it's ready to print now. It's, it's all fine. Every single time there's been, oh shit, I forgot about this. So I was trying, I've been trying to work out this connection between trees and music. And then after it was too late to change the book at all, a friend of mine, um, contacted me and said, I just read this really brilliant thing by Pythagoras. Pythagoras said that a tree is the solidification of music. So a tree is music solidified. And that just really works for me. I don't know how it works, but it kind of makes sense. Yes. Does it make sense? It does make sense. That's amazing. I know. And then you just published before that. You could put that quote in. So annoying. And I've also found a way of putting music into the landscape. So what you do is you look at the landscape and then you divide that into the shapes and then you pop um, stave wherever you want and then you play it. <laughs> And it usually sounds quite good. Yes. Well, especially, I guess... Should give it a go. I'm, I'd definitely give it a go, actually. Because is the Bracken Beacons, is that near the Black is that Black Mountains, near Hay on Wye? Have I got it completely Yes, wrong? it's not far at all. It's not far at all. Right. It's so about... It... So the Bracken Beacons is the National Park, um, and it's quite sprawly. 
Um, and Hay-on-Wye is outside of the National Park, but it's about 15 miles away, something like that. Yes, so you have um, quite this thing. And are you very influenced by your landscape? Do you ever feel quite like, yes, quite different when you go to different places? Or, you know, if you were going through America and you were going to a national park, does, does that sort of, do you feel quite different or can you keep quite grounded in yourself? I don't know. I haven't really thought about it, to be honest. Yes, I just wondered if I you... really don't know. I, do, I mean, I love going to the sea. Um, that's a different thing. It's much more energetic. Um, it's very musical as well, actually, the sound of waves. And so that, that's something that I'll watch out for, actually. I'll, I might have to come back to you on that one. Yes, because <laughs> I know, because, you know, this one of those, I mean, this is what... I was talking to that chat from Johnny H. Jazz, and we were talking about, you know, the that period, especially the 90s, there was a lot of kind of people got really into, like, drum groups and drumming, and then there was a lot of people discovering ley lines and, you know, earth energy. Yeah, and, and, the interesting and... thing about, the interesting thing about Clark, um, he came up um, with a woman who was Native American, and what they were doing, and it was a friend of a friend who knew about them, and this is before we'd even opened the studio, actually. Um, and we got on really, really well. And what they were doing, Clark and this woman, Swan Storm, is they were going to places that they felt had healing energy, um, which, is, which are usually places that have not so much human habitation, I think. Mm -hmm. And they, so they're going to places that had healing energy and they were going to go put the music back in the places that needed that music. Um, so they'd maybe write music up at hours and then take it to a place that really needed some um, work, if you like. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what they were doing. And we had a brilliant time with them. Um, Clark was just amazing. What a nice, nice guy. I'm really glad that things are going, going well for him because um, he wasn't, you know, the spiritual thing, he, he wore it well. Um, you know, he, he was kind of, he wore it really lightly. He wears it really lightly, but very profoundly at the same time. Um, and I'm a, I'm a little bit weir leery about the word spiritual because it can seem a little bit flimsy, a little bit woo-woo. Um, but he, he <laughs> well, I don't want to be a woo-woo person because I think mm. that things are too funny to be serious, even spirituality. Yes, I agree. Yes, you don't want woo woo. No, it can get a bit. I can. It, I think actually, looking back at that, some of those periods, it there was a little bit of, um, I don't know, fashion flakiness. You know, I think then you know people have a honeymoon period. Then there's a little bit of you know shuffling and adjusting and and not having to sort of be quite so bore everybody every sort of social occasion about the latest new age workshop they've been to. There was a little bit of competition going on at times. I'm not sure if that's oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean though. Yes, I do. <laughs> but it's nice when, you know, there's a sense of like gravitas rather than it all being a bit Yeah, when you get you know, when you meet somebody and they've got a sort of there's a solidness rather than, oh look, there's a new thing that I must go and do and rush off and then mm -hmm. oh no, that didn't work mm -hmm. out, I'll rush back. I mean, I think that's a nice process, but I think there is a time when you kind of just want a little bit more 
grounding and a little bit more sort of um, stability. Not stability. There's a lot to be. There's a yeah. There's a lot to be said for for grounding and grounded people that are really really reliable. Yes, it's I a relief, isn't it, to meet people like that? Yes, huge relief. <laughs> I completely <laughs> agree. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise it's like, oh, I can't, can't cope with their kind of manicness, really. So, um, yeah. So when you, I mean, so obviously, you know, you've had an amazing life. I mean, can you recognise, you know, yourself? Or do you sort of, you know, back then to now? Do you, or does it feel quite like, oh, yes, that was quite the journey? Or do you think... Blimey, that that really was because you know being in the band is one thing, and you know normally bands, you know what I've found is they last for five years. They have the twelve month honeymoon. They get the single. In those days, John Peel gave them a you know play and then a session. The first album, things going quite well. Second album, not so well. And then that's the five years. But you know you're going in from one band to another, and then the record label. You know you've sort of really, you know, not many people have got that narrative at all, actually. I mean, actually, Alan McGee's probably the closest with his kind of various bands and then Creation Records, but, you know, that's yeah. quite um, It's an interesting question, and I think how to... I, I, I do feel that a lot of the things that have happened to me have been quite odd. Um, I also know that I'm kind of game for just about anything, really, and I like making, th- you know, you can kind of know when something's going to happen and you don't know what it is. But all you have to do is give it a tiny little push. And if you get your timing right, then things work. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I know that, but I do. And also I'm really liking the aging process because it means you can look back at all this stuff and kind of see the kind of trajectory of who you were and how you developed as a human being um, and where you are now. And you can also have an idea of what you're gonna be like later now because we're old enough that we know that we can make a difference. We can decide whether, whether we are nice people or not so nice people or greedy or um, kind we have all these choices in front of us. And I think when you're younger, you sometimes don't realise that you have those choices, but we had them all along, we just never knew. So it's like this kind of unfolding, um, like an unravelling, that's what it kind kind of feels like for me currently. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think, yes, because I think in a way... It's also kind of editing. Sometimes you, I think from, from what you're saying, I'm not saying this is how you feel, um, but I, because I, I could, I can understand that, but that sense of being able to quickly say no to things, it's quite, because you mentioned young and archetypes. And I think what I get a sense quite a lot is when I meet people and you, and you kind of go, blimey, that reminds me of that person and remember how that kind of relationship went or that situation. And so my ability to say no, but in a kind of nice way. <laughs> so it's not negative. It's like, no, I'm not, you know, I've done that. I'm not going. So it's, it's a bit better at editing things than I probably used to where it's like, oh, I should try that because that might be good. And then it's like, no, nope, yeah. that's not so good. Yeah. And now it's a bit like, no, I 
blimey, I just got a bit of a gut feeling from that. No, no way. So there's a lot more ability to edit or say no or just feel the path. That's, you know what? You're absolutely right. And something that I've only just realised really recently is there are some people that don't make me feel happy. Mm. Particularly. And I've suddenly learned what that is. And I've also learned that I don't need to be around them. I don't have to do that anymore. And I've only just realized that really this year. And I'm like 50, um, 50, 50, 59, 59, 58, thank you. <laughs> I'm 57 now and I've only just realized that the people that make me feel not quite as happy as I should be or uncomfortable or exploited or whatever, I don't have to work with them anymore. I don't no, this is them. true. Why didn't I know this years ago? Yeah. <laughs> I think a whole lot of bother. I know. But then, I, yeah, I mean, it's only through that, those experiences. I think the thing is, and, and this sounds a bit strange, I suppose, but it's almost like, I don't know what the word would be, but it's like God saying, look, here's the situation, see if you learn from it. And sometimes if you don't, you're like, oh, okay, we'll give you that situation again, but slightly different and a little bit more. And then one day you just go, no, I'm not doing that again. But thanks, I'm just, I'm walking away from this. Yeah. Oh, I'm doing it different. I'm, you know, it's like, no, I'm not going to repeat. I'm not yeah, gonna... it sounds like you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, so it's that thing of like, yeah, I'm not, you know, just I've got a sense and... And in the past, perhaps it was like, oh, perhaps I should say yes, because it might leave something and it might be good and I'm missing opportunity. But now it's like, no, I'm not that, I'm not Actually, that bothered. No. <laughs> done it. Been there, done it. I don't, I don't think You're I'm very, very good interviewer, by the way. You're really empathetic. Oh, I don't know. So that's all. So, E, interestingly. So if you, oh, yeah. So have you got a project that you're now working on on the book front or you've got your foraging and you've got your gin? And I just wonder. Yeah, the gin is a nice little side. It's a little side hustle, if you like. I this year is looking really busy. So what I'm trying, what I've been aiming to do for several years now, is to be busy during the busy months for foraging, and then not do so much during the winter and do writing during the winter. So that's what I'm aiming at. This is the first book that I've actually managed to do that with, and it's, it's worked really well, actually, um, because I'm, I'm just forage only for myself. Um, I always take my dog out for good, you know, walk a lot anyway. Um, but then to have that kind of wintering time where everything is kind of pulled inwards. Yes. Um, that, that's what I'm aiming at. So, yeah, this, this year is looking really good. It's, Obviously, there's, there's the Tree Forager book um, that kind of missed a lot of things that it should have had last year because of um, lockdown. So that is that's the main emphasis um, is, is the Tree Forager and also the, the rejig of the Hedgerow Handbook. Oh, um, so I'll be concentrating on that for this year and as well as all the other stuff that I'm, I'm doing as well. And then... Um, autumn winter I'll I'll write another book I think fantastic did you did you I remember sort of in the 70s those there was some classic books weren't there was I think John Seymour did self-sufficiency there was also another book I can't remember oh, yeah. the author called food for free I think Richard Richard maybe 
Midget, yes, there you go. And the Crank's yeah. Cookbook. Did you, were you quite inspired with some of those kind of publications or did you not? Um, I didn't, I didn't know about them. I, I didn't really know about them until quite late on, I think, probably mid-twenties. Right. Uh, and the Richard Maybe one I particularly like. In fact, I've got probably all his books. And his, my favourite is this one called Flora Britannica which is a huge, great thick tome, and it is just closely written, beautifully observed. Um, you can pick it up and find out so much interesting information. I just love the way he writes. I actually met Richard maybe once, and it was probably a bit like meeting, meeting David Bowie. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> I, I, think, I think he, I'm not sure if he lives in this area, the, the east side, but I know he's often... He gives did. Books. Yes, he does. He's not far away. He's in Suffolk somewhere. Yeah, Halesworth or somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. He's, he's in that. Because he, he did a big move from um, the kind of west to the east. Um, where did you say you were? You're Norfolk, are you? Norwich. Oh, well, though I Norwich. came, though I was brought up in Suffolk. So his name is, there was a guy called Roger Deakin, who was another guy. Oh! <gasps> Amazing, yeah. Who did a book about yeah. swimming, swimming in rivers? Or, or... Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think Robert McFarlane has been really influenced by these guys too, actually. And, and Nan Shepherd, who was a woman that roamed the um, the Grampian Mountains in her in her kilt, oh. and she'd forget to go home, and she'd be out, you know, all weathers, just wandering around in her kilt just being at one with the mountain it's got to be done it's it sounds perfect i know garden <laughs> we love it don't we um so look if you were to, to ask yourself oh no ask yourself if you could have told your 16 year old self something you know if you you know with all the years of experience and wisdom if there's something you could have whispered in their ear was there is there anything particular you would have just sort of said you might ignore this <laughs> but I'll just give you this a few top tips. So is there anything in particular that you would have mentioned? Um, I would think I would say it's okay to drift because there's so much emphasis on um, people having to do this and having to do that. And if you don't do this by that time, you're never going to get a job. And um, so it's okay to drift and do the things that make you happy. That, that would be what I would say. Um, because life is really seriously short, isn't it? It it's is. It's too short to stuff that Yeah, I know. I know. It's boggling, really. So, um, yes, and, and change your expectations for appreciation, then everything will feel like a miracle. Oh, that's a nice one. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good one, actually. What would you say? I th I, well, it, it's like don't panic you know don't panic at six because actually when I was 16 which was 1980 I think it was this oh my god I don't know what I want to do and there was that kind of oh my you know and you know mm -hmm. rather than just saying look just explore for the next four years be productive mm -hmm. and do things mm -hmm. and sign up and 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 don't just sit around but but don't think because it's like oh you know go to the careers teacher and say you know what do you want to do oh why didn't you do this and and in a way it's like you you know, I know when my dad was 16, you know, he'd already left work, uh, left school and was already working at 15. But mm -hmm. there it, it was just a lot of kind of pressure, even though I was only a, a sort of a, not the most exciting school and stuff. But I think it was just that, that, yeah, and not to, I think there's certain things like 
I suppose in a way I wished I'd been more confident being on my own so I didn't sort of feel like I was trying to do mm -hmm. be somebody I didn't want to be sometimes I think that would have been good because I think that would have you know and have different more I think as I got older I've got slightly more different groups of people that I mix with or enjoy you know but I don't have to have be best friends with someone and have to hang out with yeah. them and I I really enjoy that feeling of like not having a commitment to a friendship you know it's like as long as it's nice it's fine but I don't really want to have to go yes every Friday night let's go to the pub you know and, no, and things like that it's yeah. nicer now that you know a relationship you know you can meet someone you can just have a nice time and just you know it's kind of much more fluid now and it's like you don't have to sign up to some friendship that you have to be with for the rest of your life and I find yeah I mean it's funny things isn't it or when you're younger but it's difficult at the same time to make those right decisions or right choices but yeah I, I was kind of lucky I mean in a weird way because I was as I was always asthmatic so I could never really abuse my health that much so mm -hmm. um, yeah well, that's fortunate then actually isn't so it? I never really got dabbled into any kind of thing but I kind of wished I didn't spend so much time in pubs I suppose when I was younger I mean that I I wasn't, horrendous. I wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. actually if, if it helps I was never I was always on the you know although I'd go to all the the clubs and stuff like that. I I think I was probably the only person in London that had never done ecstasy, <laughs> uh, and I was never I was terrified of taking drugs. Um, really, really, really terrified. So I kind of avoided that like the plague. Yes. Um, so probably, possibly, possibly quite what you would call square, really, because I was just like, no, I don't think I will. Thank you very much. No. <laughs> and I'm quite glad about that because I've seen some horrendous drug casualties, you know, over the years. Yes. Well, yeah. Really? It's, it's, it's terrible, really. But yeah. And I've actually, went, the, the thing that I've really enjoyed as I've got much older, even though I've had some bizarre health moments, you know, in my 50s, um, is that I've just really enjoyed being outside, doing exercise or fitness. I like either it's a walk, or I'd love going for a bike ride or even going for a little run. I just really enjoy that energy and that kind of sense of using the body because now I've got to that age where yeah. I kind of fear, you know, so I, I sort of do make the most it, of it. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I could never find a yoga class I like, but then I found this Les Mills thing, Les Mills, and they do body pump and body balance. And actually those things I really enjoy engaging with like for 45 minutes a day. And it's like, you know, some nice music, they're nice presenters, you can just watch them go through it. And you think, oh, actually, I'm getting slightly more flexible. And I'm just enjoying that. Yeah, and it's it's energizing. It's it's really energizing, isn't it? It's like getting everything served. You know, you you feel fitter and stronger and more able and like like you get out of a yes. better day because of it, because you just put that effort in. Yeah, and starting and starting the morning, going outside and doing something outside, whether it's even snowing, it's fine because it just kind of clears the mind from all your dreams and all those kind yeah, of. Yeah, absolutely. Noise. I recommend a dog. Actually, I do recommend dogs to everyone. I think they should be given on the national. <laughs> yes, I think. Well, I grew up with a dog. Our family had a dog, and it was a Labrador. And I used to, he used to get walked so much, you know, because we'd all go. I'm just taking the dog for a walk, and it was nice because it had that excuse of you didn't feel quite. Have you got a dog now? No, but I don't mind going and having it. Oh, actually, I'm just going to go for a nice little run, or I'll go for a bike ride, or just go for a walk around the block a bit and go through the park. And so I'm quite happy with that. But 
yeah, I'm quite disciplined now that I've got older on that front. So there you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. But look, thank you ever so much for this. I know it's amazing. Oh, I really <laughs> enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, this has I'm been great. I'm going to have to go back and do a timeline of all this stuff now because I feel it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really thought provoking, actually. I didn't know that this was what it was going to be like. So you're a really, really good interviewer. And thank you very much for asking me. Yes, really well, thank you. And um, look, and I, I can always send you the, the link when I, I do it. So um, you can always listen to it if you want. But that's great. But look, thank you ever so much. And look, all the best for the year. And um, yes, um, thank you. Yes, I hope, hope you enjoy would the you like? Would you like a copy of any one of these books? Do well, you have a tree forage? I think. Why don't you send me your address? I will. I'll send you address, my address and that would oh, be amazing. Okay, well, look, Thanks. thank you ever so much and take care. Thanks, David. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. I'll just go here and... Yeah, there you go. I love leaving those last bits in because um, it just always makes me laugh how sort of, I don't know, embarrassed and fumbly I am, which, uh, yes, I don't know, it keeps me amused. Right, anyway, look, a massive thank you to Adele for giving me the time for that. Now, she's got a brilliant website which you can find. Um, yes, if you just put in her name, Adele, knows Adele, dot com um her surname is spelled n-o-z-e-d-a-r and adele yes well you should be able to remember that one or i don't know work it out so look that's fantastic and um yeah this is the c86 show david Eastor. probably said that already but if you want to contact me for some reason make it nice and positive otherwise don't bother um you can on uh, just find c86 show and uh, i'll be there and also all these have been archived and you can find those on podbean indeed, Spotify and iTunes. There you go. Look, have a great week. Stay safe.